The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so that if you need to utilize 1 John 1, 9 for private confession of sin to God the Father to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, we'll do that and then open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for this privilege to look at your word today, to see how you worked through Israel in the Old Testament, and to gain an overview of of all of the major uh, trends and themes and doctrines that you have for us in the Old Testament that were were laid out as a preparation, that these events occurred as an example for us in the church age, that we might learn from them, that we might be challenged by them, and that we might avoid the same mistakes. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and Assimilate these doctrines into the thinking of our soul. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our study of the Old Testament. Seventeenth lesson in now we're in the divided kingdom. Now when we uh, think about where we've come, we started off with an orientation to the Old Testament text and then we began with creation in Genesis. We saw that God had a plan for the human race, and that's related to the angelic conflict and the the fall of Satan, and the man and human race is designed to be a testimony to to the angels in respect to how God works through the human race and His grace and justice. God created man distinct from all other creatures. Man is said to be in the image and likeness of God. That tells us that man has a role. The image and likeness, as we studied, doesn't just mean that man possesses an immaterial nature that is similar to God. That is true, but there is a function to that. There is a purpose to that. Man is given that immaterial image so that he will represent God. That's a function of an image. It is a representation. So we are to represent God over the creation as his, as an overlord to creation, a vicegerent, as in one terminology, as a vassal of the great king. So we have studied that there is this this overarching concept of covenant in the Old Testament that expresses the outworking of God's purposes for mankind. And it's, it's analogous to the secular treaty, the secular, secular covenant that we study called the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. And in that treaty, and its greatest example, I guess, in the Old Testament is really the Mosaic Covenant, there is a section of blessings and curses to Israel. 
God called out, God appointed man as his, made him in his image in Genesis 1. Then we had the fall of Adam. Then we had the second major judgment, which was the universal worldwide flood of, of, uh, of Noah. That was followed again by another decline in human history down to the Tower of Babel, man's rebellion against God. And then God called out a particular individual through whom he would restrict his revelatory work, and that is Abram. And God made a special covenant called a royal grant type of covenant with Abram, the Abrahamic covenant, which is foundational to understand everything else in the Old Testament in relationship to Israel because it is through Abraham now as, and, and the Jews as a special servant of God coming back to that, that image theme. Now it's focusing on Israel, that Israel will be the nation, the specific nation through whom God will work out his redemptive purposes for mankind. It is through Israel that God will reveal himself, and it is through Israel that God will be a blessing to all mankind, to all the nations. And so the, the fortunes of the nation Israel are directly related then, according to the Mosaic Covenant, to their spiritual life. If they are walking with the Lord, if they're obedient to the Lord, learning doctrine, positive to the Lord, then God will bless them and Consequently, the nations will receive an overflow of blessing. But if they are disobedient, then God cannot use this disobedient nation, carnal nation Israel, to bless the Gentiles. So God will reverse things and he will use the Gentiles then to come back and discipline through uh, conquest and other, other means the nation Israel. And this works itself out throughout the whole history of Israel in the Old Testament. We started off with looking at the conquest, the period of crisis under the judges, and then the rejection of the theocratic uh, model by the nation. They didn't want God to be their king anymore. They wanted to have a king like every other nation, First Samuel. And so the first major prophet, Samuel, then anoints the first king, Saul. And that begins the first period in the nation's history. And so when we look at this, we see that we go back to the key verse in Exodus 19:5-6, where God says, If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For the, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a distinct nation, a set-apart nation. So there is something about the nation Israel as the centerpiece of all of human history that is aimed here. So to understand history, we really have to understand theology. And to understand history apart from uh, Israel is to misunderstand history. And one of the things we will see I, I, from, from our study of the development of the history of Israel and the kings and, and what happens in the, uh, during the period of the divided kingdom is that as goes Israel, so goes the rest of the world. If Israel is walking in obedience to the Lord, and, and, and the, the thing is, if you read it, literature and history that's influenced by liberal theology, what they will say is that, well, it, it's during a certain period of time because Assyria was having problems and they were falling apart or because Egypt was, was going through certain internal crises that, that in this power vacuum, Israel was enabled to increase their power. But what the scripture, says, re, the scripture reverses that. The Scripture says that because Israel is walking with the Lord and therefore God is blessing them to increase their power, the Gentile nations diminish in power. And then when Israel is disobedient to God, God raises up and empowers these Gentile nations so that he can use them as rods of correction on Israel. 
so that the mechanism of human history is determined by the spiritual orientation of Israel. Everything depends on how Israel is related to the law and related to God. And so it is the spiritual dynamic that moves history. As goes the believer, so goes the nation, so goes the history of the world. And that same principle is just as true today. As goes the believer in any nation, so goes that nation. The, the fortune, the ebb and flow of prosperity and the fortunes of any nation is directly related to what is taking place in the church in that particular country, and that's also related then to God's working out of His purposes in preparing things in, on the planet for the ultimate judgment of the tribulation and re- return of Christ. So that it, it's an invisible, unseen impact that we, that we have. You don't see this direct correlation. I mean, you can look at history. You can look at a person's life, for example. You look at, at your child and you see them sometimes want to reach out and touch something hot and you slap their hand and you learn over cause and effect in your life not to touch things that are hot because there's immediate reaction. The thing is, in the spiritual domain, that reaction is not so immediately felt so that the positive and negative volition and the flow of that may not work itself out in, in, in a way where you see that immediate cause and effect. So sometimes it's easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that, well, our spiritual condition really doesn't matter. It's not that determinative. And yet the Scripture says that's the issue in faith. It is that determinative, and we walk by means of faith and not by means of sight. Now, we've laid out the organization of the Old Testament. We saw that the first five books are called the Law, written by Moses in about 1440 B.C., also called the Torah, the Pentateuch. Then we have the historical book, the historical section that extends from uh, 1040 to about, you have a section from 1440 to about 1080, which is the conquest and crisis years of wandering in the wilderness, then from about 10, uh, 1040 down through 931, you have the United Kingdom. Uh, we'll come back and look at this in detail in a minute. Then you have the split into the Northern Kingdom and Judah in the Southern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom goes out under divine discipline uh, when the Assyrians finally wipe it out under Sennacherib in 722 B.C. The Judah goes out under divine discipline in 586 B.C. under Nebuchadnezzar when the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is overrun and sacked by Nebuchadnezzar's armies. And then there's a 70-year period of exile in 536 B.C. under Ezra I. Deportees began to return. First exiles began to return to rebuild the city and to rebuild the wall. And you have what is called the post-exilic period. We looked then at the writings, the wisdom writings of Job, Psalms, uh, the wisdom writings of Solomon's, uh, all of his collection, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, and we saw how they fit into the overall history of Israel. Now, as we look at the development of Israel's history, we'll see where the prophets fit in. Isaiah in the 600 B.C., Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel all write just... Jeremiah and Ezekiel began their writings just prior to the exile and into the exile. Jeremiah is exiled... He goes out with the group to Egypt. Ezekiel is in Babylon. Daniel spends his whole ministry in Babylon. We'll see the pre-exilic minor prophets, where they fit in, as well as the three post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. That's the overview. Now let's look at our specifics this morning. We've looked at the law. Now we're into the historical section. The historical section. The nation can basically be divided into five periods. The history of Israel can basically be divided into five distinct periods of history. The first is the period of the United Kingdom. 
the United Kingdom, which extends from Saul's inauguration as king in 1051 down through 931 B.C. when there is a revolt of the ten northern tribes and they separate from Rehoboam, the heir to Solomon's kingdom. The United Kingdom has three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. Saul, David, and Solomon. Saul, as we have seen, is very self-centered. He is not God-centered. He doesn't really understand God's purposes for Israel. He's like so many of the Israelites, and unfortunately like so many Christians, he just doesn't have a concept of God's plan for human history and how he as an individual fits into that plan. He doesn't have a heart for God. He seems to be a rather moral, upright individual, especially if you compare him to David. And I think this is quite an interesting contrast because the distinction between Solomon and David on the outside is, is pretty extreme. Remember, I pointed out the contrast that Saul is removed. Finally, he has removed. The Holy Spirit removes himself from, from Saul's ministry and, and God's approval on Saul's ministry is, is removed because Saul refuses to execute, legitimately execute, all of the Amalekites, including King Agag. So for not killing somebody, he's removed. But David commits murder, adultery, cover-up, all sorts of heinous crimes, capital crimes and sins. God not only uh, uh, takes away the death penalty, but keeps David on the throne and doesn't remove the Holy Spirit from him. Now, that's quite a contrast. See, the modern legalistic Christian looks at that and says, why is it that this guy who's an adulterer, he's a murderer, he he's got, has all this cover-up, and then we have Saul, who's really fairly moral. He seems to have all these wonderful reasons for not killing Agag, and we can use all this, just typical human good type of rationalization. And yet God removes his blessing. What's the difference? The difference is the heart attitude. The, the basic issue in Saul's life is he's never concerned about the things of God. He is not on positive volition at all. He, he, he may have been when he was young. I think he's clearly a believer. Saul... Samuel, when he comes back at that very unusual episode with the witch of Endor, when Samuel comes back from the grave, says, Saul, you and your, uh, your sons will be with me today. Of course, that indicates that where Samuel was, Saul would be, which would be in paradise of the Old Testament prior to going to heaven. So from that, I think there's good evidence, along with the Holy Spirit coming on Saul, all of the things that happened back after the inauguration of Saul indicate that he's a believer. But he doesn't have a clue spiritually. He is just out to lunch. He just, he just wants to use the kingdom for his own purposes and to establish his own house and his own dynasty. And the result is that, that he loses it all. And what we le- learn from that is the doctrinal principle that when we're uh, out there trying to su- develop our own name and trying to uh, accumulate our own, uh, rep- build our own reputation, then that self-centeredness and God will destroy us. God is the one who builds the house and it's on the principle of humility and service to God. So Saul is removed. He's replaced by David and this is really God's ideal king. God had promised a king and indicated there would be a king as far back as as Deuteronomy. So that was always within God's plan to give them a king. Saul was given to show the negative side. David is the ultimate model of the ideal king. He is God-centered. He is said to be a man after God's own heart, which indicates that God's priorities are David's priorities. We all have sin natures like David. The trends of your sin nature may be different from the trends of David's sin nature, 
But we all have a terrible sin nature, and David gave in to his just as we give in to ours at times. And yet the bottom line, when everything was said and done, despite his sinfulness, despite his carnality, David was a man who cared deeply about God's program for his life and for, for the human race, and he was oriented to that. Uh, so David is honored by God with a special covenant, the Davidic covenant, which is just an expansion of the second area of the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant covers three areas. That there would be, uh, they would be a blessing to all the nations. There would be a, a Abraham would have a seed that would go on eternally, and that um, they would have a land. So the Davidic covenant expands on the seed promise and that this seed would go through the line of David. Of course, uh, Joseph had prophesied concerning the house of Judah that the royal scepter would never depart from the house of Judah. So David is of the tribe of Judah, and it is through David. Saul was not. Saul was of the house of Benjamin, uh, tribe of Benjamin. So David is going to be the seed. Now, that's critical for understanding what goes on throughout Israel's history, especially in Judah. There is always a witness to David on the throne. No matter what happens, the sign of the Davidic covenant is that there is a seed of David. And that never disappears. There are a couple of times when the light seems to flicker rather dimly and one wonders if there will be a, uh, a seed of David on the throne. But ultimately that ends up being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ who, after the resurrection, will never die and he will come back to sit on the Davidic throne and fulfill that aspect of the promise forever. So David has this special covenant, and that plays a role. If you understand what's, the, what's happening in all the confusing names and events and all the stuff that happens in Kings and Chronicles, hard for us to, to separate everything out and really, really remember all the details, you always have to watch, keep your eye on the ball. The old sports adage, keep your eye on the ball, and the ball is the seed of David. And as long as you watch that, then you can watch how everything else is related to working out that theme of the seed of David and the outworking of God's covenant promises. So David is the, represented as the ideal king. That doesn't mean he is the ideal man. doesn't mean he's sinless. doesn't mean that he reaches any level of human perfection at all. I think we tend to paint David and some of these Old Testament heroes through um, somewhat distorted glasses. And these men were all... Um, Spiritual, tremendous spiritual failures at times. And we have to understand that's just as much a part of the biblical record as anything else. That's not the focus. The focus is that they did at times, at crucial times, trust the Lord exclusively. David is succeeded on the throne by his son Solomon. Solomon has a divided heart. David has a heart for God. Solomon has a divided heart. He can't really make up his mind where his priorities are. He is completely enamored with the details of life and spends the majority of his life in uh, uh, carnality away from the Lord trying to find happiness in all the details of life. He has 700 wives. I always wonder why a man with 700 wives would want 300 concubines. <laughs> Solomon was, was enamored by all of the trappings of royalty and that was the sign of royalty and, the, and your prestige in the ancient world was how many wives and how many concubines you have. And so, he is a man of divided loyalty. He wants what God wants. But like in 1 Kings 3, 3, the key word is accept. He loved the Lord and walked in His ways, except he did not remove the high places. He, he loved the Lord, but he married Pharaoh's daughter, which had been 
forbidden by the Lord, warned against having multiple wives. He'd also been warned against marrying foreigners. But he loves the Lord, but he marries Pharaoh's daughter. In 1 Kings chapter 6, we're told that he wanted to construct the Lord's house, and he has a desire to build this beautiful edifice to glorify the Lord. And it takes seven years to build the temple. And you read all the descriptions in 1 Kings 6. It's just a, an incredible structure. All of the gold that's involved in the, and the, the wealth of the temple was phenomenal. But then you read later on in the next chapter in 1 Kings 6 that it took Solomon 13 years to build his own house. So we see the divided loyalty and the split emphasis in uh, Solomon's life. Solomon, of course, leaves us the legacy of his writings of wisdom and Proverbs, Song of Songs, which is the picture of the love relationship between a man and a woman, and it's a great book, fantastic book to study on both courtship and marriage, and hopefully someday we'll, we'll get there. But Solomon leaves a legacy. He is divided in his heart, and it works itself out in terms of his, uh, what he bequeaths to the nation. The nation, by the time he, div- he leaves, is split. It is split because in order to build the temple, in order to build his own house, he has a heavy tax system. And people are crushed under the tax system, and so there is the, the wind of revolt in the air, and people want to get out from under that heavy tax burden. See, tax revolts are not new. They're, they're very old, and, and it's always been the, uh, you know, the larger the government, the more oppressive it is. And, People need to realize that freedom is always related to how much money is going out of your pocket into the federal government. And when you realize, when we realize that, what is it now? We work from January the 1st. The average person works from January the 1st until the middle of June, or somewhere thereabouts, just in order to support the federal government. Now, we ought to make that a little more real and say, you know, everything you make from the 1st of January until the middle of June goes to pay the salaries of all the bureaucrats. You're really working to put food on their table, whether you realize in the rest of the time you get to work for yourself. And, and, and somebody told me recently, I think Bryce told me, that, that there was an article in the uh, New London paper that an a, a accountant down in Maryland did a study of the, the total tax structure, not just income tax and sales tax, but included property tax and every tax, uh, car tax, uh, everything that uh, in, in any state. And the state that was had that had the highest tax burden in the country was Connecticut. And the number two state was 37% less than Connecticut. And that was New Jersey. 37% less. So that probably means that people who live, live in Connecticut here uh, work till September or October to pay for <laughs> bureaucratic salaries. and That means we're slaves. That's basically what that means. We're slaves to the government, and we just haven't caught on to the fact that because they don't teach American history anymore that the Founding Fathers understood that there was a direct relationship between taxation and freedom. That's why they made such an issue about taxation without representation. But that was a major problem that, was, that Solomon had in his um, administration. You see, for the first time in Israel's history, a development of a genuine class society because of the burden of taxation. There's the... The aristocracy is developed for the first time, a wealthy class, and consequently a poor class. There is more of a division that takes place there. And the warning that God gave through Samuel to the nation back in 1 Samuel uh, 7, when they wanted to have a king, and he said, you have a king, they're going to increase the burden of taxation on you, it's going to become oppressive, you're going to lose freedom, 
and it finally comes to fruition in the the uh, in, in Solomon's kingdom. Now, what happens then is the kingdom divides in a revolt in 931 B.C. It divides into the northern kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes there go out under Rehoboam and I mean, excuse me, under Jeroboam the first. Solomon's son Rehoboam is inaugurated as king. And it's interesting that instead of getting inaugurated in Jerusalem, which is the capital, he goes back to Shechem to be inaugurated. Now, Shechem is the site where Joshua had called all the people together after the conquest in order to renew their covenant with God, in order to review all of what God said in the Mosaic Law and what their responsibilities were and what the blessings and curses were. So, so there is an emotional element to Shechem. It would be like um, uh, the President of the United States 100 or 150 years ago, back when we still had a historical sense of feeling, deciding that instead of getting inaugurated in Washington, they would get inaugurated at Valley Forge or, or perhaps at Gettysburg on some battlefield where there was tremendous emotional content to it just to try to reunite the people. So that's what Rehoboam does. He realizes that the, the nation is divided. He is, uh, goes to Shechem to be inaugurated. And then when he calls his advisors together, uh, he realizes there's a, there's a, a group that, of citizens that come under, under Jeroboam and they present a petition to Rehoboam to lighten the tax low. There's a little bit of a tax revolt here and to lighten the tax burden. And so he calls his advisors together, Rehoboam does, and his advisors, he goes with the old men say, no, let's lighten the load, and the young men would say, no, no, let's, let's increase the tax load. We want more money. We want to take, take advantage of let, letting the people work to support us. Typical bureaucratic mentality. So Rehoboam, in a lack of wisdom, decides to go with the young men, increase the tax, tax burden on the people, and there is a major revolt led by Jeroboam in the north, and ten tribes go out with him. The tribe of Benjamin in the south uh, unites more closely with Judah, and so you have uh, two nations now, the nation Israel in the north and the nation Judah in the south. So the next section we go through we see is that, that the northern kingdom is, uh, separates themselves politically, socially, and theologically from the south, and that lasts from 931 to 722 B.C., which is uh, uh, just over, just about 210 years, not a very long period of time. They, they didn't last as long as the United States of America has, has lasted as a nation. So they have, they're rather short-lived before God finally takes them out under divine discipline. And then you have the southern kingdom that goes from 931 to 586 B.C., and they are taken out finally under Nebuchadnezzar. From 931 to 722, you have a period of the divided kingdom, and then from 722 to 586, you have Judah alone. So that would be the, the United Kingdom is number one, the divided kingdom is number two, Judah alone in, is number three, and then number four, you have Judah in captivity, and that goes from 586 B.C. until 536 B.C., 586 to 536, when the first group begins to return from captivity. And then the last section, the post-exilic period. So you have the exile. So you talk about pre-exilic, the exilic period, and then the post-exilic period extends from 536 down to for just a rough date, 400 B.C., because that's when the last book in the Old Testament is written. 
from 400 to up to the time of Christ. That's a period of silence called the intertestamental period. So that's basically the outline of what we'll cover uh, the rest of this morning and then probably at least the next, uh, next couple of sessions just to give us an overview of this particular period. So we'll look at the development through these five kingdoms. Now let's go back and look at the first kingdom, which is the northern kingdom. Northern kingdom goes from 931 to 7, 722 B.C. 931 to 722 B.C. I think I had a typo back there of 711, but 722 B.C. Now the way, reason I began with the northern kingdom is because that's the way the writer of Kings develops this. We'll look at this from 1 Kings 14 on covers the period of the divided kingdom. From 1 Kings 14 on covers the period of the divided kingdom. And I have given you a handout just to try to help you organize your thinking, help us to see some things. We have the uh, this overhead to look at. You might want to take that out, put down a few little notes. How clearly does that show up on the overhead? Can you read that okay? I can hardly read it myself. So um, It starts off with... Is there an extra copy of that? Now, bring, would you bring me one? I can't read it off the overhead. It's so, so faint. starts off comparing the two sides you have. Thank you. You have Judah on the left and Israel on the right. You have the first king is Rehoboam, and the way the writer, the first king in Judah is Rehoboam from 931 to 913. The first king in the north is in Israel is Jeroboam. Now, if you look at that chart, you see that Jeroboam reigns from 931 down through 910. So the way the writer of Kings records the history is he tells us first about Jeroboam. That will cover up to 9.10. Then he goes to the southern kingdom. And he talks about Rehoboam. Rehoboam reigns from 9.31 to 9.13 when he dies. And 9.13 hasn't gotten us up to 9.10 yet, the end of Jeroboam's reign. So he then talks about the son and heir of Rehoboam, Abijam. Abijam only reigned for two years from 9.13 to 9.11. That still hasn't gotten us to 9.10. So he goes to Asa the third king in the south, who then reigns from 911 to 870. Well, he covers those three kings. Now, of course, that's gotten us past the 910 date of the end of Jeroboam's reign, so he has to go back to the north to catch up. So he goes back to the north, and then he covers Nadab, who was only on the throne for, for two years, and then uh, Baasha, and then Elah, and Zimri. That finally gets us up to... Zimri and Omri. Omri gets us up past the 870 date, the end of Asa's reign. And so he'll take, go to Omri from 885 to, no, that doesn't quite get it, to 874 and then to Ahab. Then he will switch back to Jehoshaphat. Do you see how that goes? That's his order. Always he takes the north first. Because I think the point of the writer of Kings is to make us understand the serious consequences of spiritual rebellion. If you want to understand what's going on with all of the kings, you have to realize that every single king in the north is bad, period. There's nothing good about any king in the north. They are all in idolatry. They're all in rebellion against God. So no king in the north is a good king. In the south, there are five good kings. 
there are five good kings in the south. The first is Asa. You can put a mark by each one that is good. Uh, on the first page, you have Asa, followed by Jehoshaphat. Just put an asterisk by their name, and you'll be able to see who's, who's good. You have Asa, and then Jehoshaphat, and then the next good king is Joash here. 835 to 796. He's a good king. And then the last one on that page is Uzziah. The reason it's set up this way, he has a co-regency with his father Amaziah. Amaziah reigns from 796 to 767. Uzziah's dates are from 790 to 740 because of his father had a, had a foot problem, foot ailment. Uzziah steps in as a co-regent. And then he is followed in that Next period, we'll skip down to look at the next good king is Hezekiah. Hezekiah from 715 to 686 is probably the best king of the southern kingdom overall. The, the Word of God gives a tremendous accolades to Hezekiah and the spiritual reforms that take place there. He's succeeded by Manasseh, who is the most evil of all the kings in the south. And then there's a tremendous revival, a true revival, under Josiah, the last one. So Hezekiah is a good king, and Josiah is the last of the good kings. So there's only five good kings who are positive to doctrine and spiritually oriented in the southern kingdom. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Uzziah, Hezekiah, and, and Josiah. Now it's easy to get somewhat confused Regarding some of these names, for example, in the in the in in uh, the, the southern kingdom, you have Jehoram or Joram. Sometimes they have alternate names, just like we call a person Robert, Bob, Bobby, Robbie, Rob. I mean, you can come up with five or six different terms. You can have John, Jack, um, Johnny, all kinds of different names, and so they're called different names. Some of them are their formal names. Some of them are their regnal names. Some of them are family names, and so it gets confusing. For example, on this chart, you have Jehoram following Jehoshaphat. Usually he's referred to as, as Joram, and then the king in the north, because it's almost the same time, has a very similar name. He's Jehoram as well. You also have uh, other names such as Joash and Jehoash, uh, Joahaz and Jehoahaz. So you have these different kings mentioned which uh, can confuse us a little bit, so we'll try to avoid that to a certain degree and just catch the main trends of what's going on historically. So the northern kingdom begins. The northern kingdom begins in 931, and the first king is Jeroboam. Jeroboam the first. There are two kings named Jeroboam in the northern kingdom: Jeroboam the first and Jeroboam the second. And Jeroboam the first is set aside by a prophet. He's designated by a prophet, even though he is a rebellious king. It is announced that he will be a king. So God gives a divine approval to Jeroboam because it's part of discipline on the house of David for their rebelliousness, uh, for, for Solomon's divided heart. God is still going to be faithful to his covenant to David. There is still going to be a seed of David on the throne in the south. But he is no longer going to bless the nation fully because of their spiritual apostasy. So God authorizes this, this split and Jeroboam splits, but this, God does not authorize Jeroboam 
to split in the fashion he does. Because what Jeroboam does, he's a masterful politician. He realizes that in order to get, have legitimacy to his reign, and in order to, rather than trusting God, he's looking at it through pure human viewpoint. Understand when I say this, that, that he's looking at this as a typical politician through, through pure human viewpoint, that in order to have any kind of substance and unity to his reign, he has to give it some sort of spiritual legitimacy. He understands the role of religion in the history of Israel, so he has to legitimize their independence. He can't have all of his people trotting down to Jerusalem six times a year to uh, participate in all of the religious festivals because then that will continuously remind his citizens that they have this inherent connection to the south and that there should really ideally be unity between the north and the south. He can't have that. He wants to have unity. So he must set up some sort of a foundation uh, politically, religiously uh, in, the, in the north. So he rewrites history. He rewrites history. He is the first historic, one of the first historical revisionists. It's typical of politicians and people in power that if you want to legitimize your, uh, your position, then what you do is you, you rewrite history. And, and if you can somehow develop a, a religious system that will legitimize your, your uh, reign, so much the better. It sort of reminds me of what Henry VIII does when he can't get the Pope to uh, legitimize his divorce. So he just says, well, we're going to leave the Roman Catholic Church and set up our own religious system, the Anglican Church, and they will recognize and legitimize my, uh, my position and my authority and I will continue as king. Now, you're always going to get some idiot secular historian tell you that, that the Reformation in England was thoroughly motivated by political stuff, and that just shows that they're secular and they don't know what they're talking about because while politically it operated that way, what was going on in England spiritually at that time was they had been deeply affected by the Lutheran Reformation and by the Calvinistic Reformation in, um, in Switzerland, and many of the pastors in England had, especially under some of the oppression from Henry VIII towards the Protestants, had left and gone to uh, Geneva to study under Calvin, and they were coming back to England and preaching the truth. So you did have a true bottom-up reformation taking place in England at that time, and the only thing that, that Henry did was, was just do his own thing politically, which God used in order to provide an umbrella of protection for what was going on at the grassroots level in terms of a true spiritual reformation in England. Now, that's just an aside there, because you always have some confusion there. Somebody Secular historians never understand the fact that the real mechanism in human history is spiritual and not it's not politics, it's not economics, it's, uh, it's not markets, it is spiritual because this is God's kingdom, God's earth, and God is still on the throne of heaven and he is working out his purposes in human history. So Jeroboam leads a revolt against the southern kingdom. He sets up an alternate capital in Shechem. He rebuilds the ancient city now. It has tremendous emotional connotations and patriotic connotations to Israel, so he chooses that site carefully and he establishes his, his uh, capital city there. But he is a spiritual apostate. He has no concern for the things of the Lord. God had promised him that he would have made his house. He would have established a permanent dynasty for uh, Jeroboam in the north if he had uh, been obedient to God's word, but he was not. There were, in fact, in the short 210-year history of the northern kingdom, we will see that there are five different dynasties. Five different dynasties over a 210-year period spell instability. 
and that is, and they also spell divine discipline. So Jeroboam decides to legitimize his reign by inventing a new religious system. And he sets up the center point of that religious system at two places, Bethel in the south, which has a lot of uh, an ancient historical site because it was at Bethel that, that Abraham had uh, Bethel is in let me find it here. Here is Bethel. It's in the south. It is Bethel from in the Hebrew means house of God. Abraham had built an altar at Bethel so that by developing this alternate religious site, so instead of going to Jerusalem you would go to Bethel, uh, it would legitimize and relate their new religious system. He could relate it back to Abraham. See he's rewriting history. And then he set up another one in the north in Dan, up here, another site. Idols of golden calves, just as Aaron had built a golden calf coming out of Egypt, but now he says he builds golden calves and says, this is the God who brought you out of, out of Egypt. Notice how he is going back and picking up partial truth and partial error. That's typical of historical revisionists. It's not the truth that gets you, it's the error that's the problem. And that is where the, all the deception takes place. And Dan is significant because uh, three generations removed from Moses, you have his grandson Jonathan, who is a complete idolater, and he goes up to Dan during the period of the judges, and it was at Dan that he established a religious center and developed a new religion of idolatry. So you see the spiritual decline there. So, so uh, Jeroboam, in his, in his brilliance, decides that he, he uses these things. Jonathan, Moses' grandson, had a worship site in Dan. Bethel goes back to Abraham. We're still worshiping the God of our fathers. We're going to build the golden calf. This is what Aaron built. This is the true God who brought us out of Egypt. And so we are going to go back to the true foundations of our religious system. Notice how he, he brilliantly reverses everything and rewrites history. He appoints a new priesthood. He does away with the Levitical priesthood. In fact, most of the Levites, during this time, decide to get out of Dodge, so to speak, and they head south to Judah. So now you have you have a uh, the Levitical tribe is reestablished in the south. You have the Benjamites in the south and Judah in the south, and the remaining ten tribes are in the north. He appoints a new new priesthood, new centers of worship, and he goes forward. Now Jeroboam is on the throne from 931 to 9. And then he is succeeded by his son, Nadab. Nadab does not last long because the house of, of uh, Jeroboam is under divine discipline and God says he will remove, uh, remove them from the throne. So he lasts two years and then he is assassinated by Baasha. And then Baasha is on the throne from 909 to 886. There is reference to him in some uh, historical documents from other sites. Uh, he is, uh, finally, his son Elah takes the throne from 886 to 885. He's on just a very short time, and he's assassinated by Zimri, who lasts about six days. And then uh, Zimri, assa- I mean, just a bloody tale. Zimri assassinates Elah. And then the army, the army is under the generalship of a brilliant man by the name of Omri. And they decide they don't want Zimri to reign, so they assassinate Zimri, and by by accolade, they uh, proclaim Omri to be king. Now, Omri sets up a dynasty that uh, is the most de- has the most devastating consequences for both the north and the south. Omri is 
crucial for understanding what happens from his reign on. He reigns for 11 years, 885 to 874, but what he does changes Jerusalem's, I mean Israel's destiny in the north and the south for the next 200 years. He's a very powerful and influential king. In fact, he is so powerful that we have records from Assyrian monuments and other monuments that continue for the next hundred years to refer to Israel, to the ruling house of Israel as the house of Omri, even though Omri, Omri's house goes out under uh, Jehoram. That's the last of his line. And, um, and yet they are still referred to as the house of Omri because of his tremendous legacy. Very powerful king. He establishes stability in the land. There's economic prosperity in the land, and he begins to enter into various alliances with the surrounding powers. Now, if we go back here to our map of Israel, up here in the north, just north of, of Israel, we see the land of Phoenicia. This is Tyre and Sidon, which is the seat of the old Canaanite culture now. Remember, they were not annihilated as God had mandated by, by Joshua or the tribes in the conquest. And so the Canaanites have now taken refuge up north in Tyre and Sidon. And the king of Tyre and Sidon is a man by the name of Esbaal. Esbaal. And just as you have people like uh, Isaiah, Yah, Y-A-H, being the name of God as part of their name, you have people who are Baal worshippers using the name of Baal in their name. So the, the king priest of the Canaanites is Esbaal. And he has a daughter by the name of Jezebel, who is uh, very beautiful. And in order to submit cement, the economic ties and trade ties, remember Tyre and Sidon are located on the coast. They are major ports. The Phoenicians were known traders throughout the world. There's even evidence that the Phoenicians may have made it to the North American continent during this same time, which indicates that it wasn't really discovered by Columbus. He was just the last in a long line. It was only in God's plan when Columbus showed up at that time because of what had taken place with the Protestant Reformation in Europe to bring North American continent into a greater uh, area of visibility and prosperity. So the Phoenicians are dominating and Omri, in order to uh, cement those ties together, has his son Ahab marry the daughter of Esbaal, Jezebel. And so Jezebel then will come down to Israel and she will introduce and legitimize Baal worship and outlaw the worship of Yahweh in the northern kingdom. And that means that now everything has reversed. God had called the Israelites to be a, be a witness for him, a witness for truth, and, and instead of being a witness for truth, they have now succumbed completely to the uh, Baal worship that they were supposed to annihilate when they came into the land. And then his daughter, Ahab and Jezebel, have a daughter named Athaliah, who then marries uh, Jehoram in the south, southern kingdom. So Jezebel's daughter becomes the queen of Judah. And at one point, everyone is wiped out in the Davidic line except for a six-month-old baby. And Athaliah is the queen. And her agenda is to unite the south under the north and to, again, outlaw the worship of Yahweh. So we see how Satan is working behind the scenes to destroy the ability of God to fulfill his covenant promises to David and consequently his covenant promises to Abraham and to prevent the messianic line and to block it 
See, Satan always thinks he can do that, but God in grace always takes evil and grace finds a solution. And if you do a careful study of the line of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will discover that Jezebel is in that line, as is Athaliah. So that just shows that grace always wins and God overcomes and is the background for our victory. So the house of Omri comes into power. Omri from 885 to 874, then Ahab 874 to 853. Now, to understand the background here, the prophet Micah, now if you look at your overhead, I have it outlined on mine in color. You might want to block it in or highlight it in yours. You see that there is the inclusion of the different prophets and where they fit. So you see that Elijah is ministering has his ministry during the reign of Ahab, and he's succeeded by Elisha during Jehu's reign. And in the southern kingdom, you have uh, approximately at that same time Obadiah and Joel overlapping with Elijah and Elisha. So you might want to just somehow indicate that on your black and white copy. That doesn't come out quite as quite as clearly. need to say something briefly about the religious systems that are developing here. You have three main periods of religious apostasy in the north. The first is deals with the sin of Jeroboam, the sin of Jeroboam. This is when he sets up a state religion, and he uses the name of God to do it. He says, we're going to, this is true, the true worship of Yahweh. He's the golden calf that we're worshiping at Dan and at Bethel. And so they went around, everybody talked about the fact that they were worshiping Yahweh. See, it's a name, it's a, it's a sort of like a shell game. You know, you just, you deceive people by changing the meanings of terms. This is what's happened in 19th century Christianity in one sense with what's called neo-orthodoxy. Uh, an orthodoxy, which is standard traditional, tri- biblically based Christianity, you have the worship of God. And then you had the rise of 19th century liberalism. And then you had a man by the name of Karl Barth come along, and he was raised as a classic 19th century liberal. But then when he saw, he was a chaplain in the German army in World War I, and when he saw the horrors of the war, he could no longer go along with the optimistic assumptions of liberalism. They said, we have to get back to the Bible. And then he only got halfway back. That's why they call it neo-orthodoxy. We have to go back and, and believe the Bible. But he, he used all the biblical terminology, but he gave it new meaning. And what's interesting is I was one time uh, attending a church, a, a Presbyterian church in Houston, it's quite large, and the pastor gave a fairly good presentation of the gospel, except I knew the pastor and I knew that what he meant by Jesus wasn't what I meant by Jesus. What he meant by died for you on the cross wasn't what you and I mean by died for you. He didn't believe in substitutionary atonement. He believed in an example view of the atonement. And he really didn't believe in the resurrection either. In fact, I just found out when I was in California, there used to be a very, a fairly good Christian liberal arts school out there called Claremont. Now, one of their theology professors doesn't even believe in a bodily physical resurrection. So you talk about, you use the God words. You talk about resurrection and Jesus and all of this, but you don't really mean what it, mean by those terms what the Bible means. That's how Satan works deception if he changes the meanings of words. So it may sound like you're talking about the same thing, but you're really not. And that's exactly what was going on and what Jeroboam did. He was very crafty, very deceptive, and extremely successful. He rejected the Mosaic Covenant. He rejected Jerusalem as the center of worship. He rewrote all of their history, but he continued to attach the name of Yahweh to everything that they did so that people think that they're Orthodox Jews and they are in apostasy. 
The second period of religious apostasy takes place under, uh, under the influence of Jezebel and Ahab from 1 Kings 16 and on. Uh, Ahab, next to Manasseh in the south, is probably the worst king in the entire history of Israel because of what he does spiritually, the introduction of Baal worship and the uh, and everything that that entails, prostitution, prostitution, cultural, I mean, uh, 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 ritual prostitution, the sacrifice, sacrificing children on the altar, burning them alive, fertility worship, phallic worship, and everything that was related to all the Canaanite perversions. Introducing uh, homosexuality was a major aspect of Baal worship. Took place in the temple under the auspices of religious worship. So it's a very evil and very decadent system. And then the third uh, period in the north is after after Jehoram, God anoints Jehu from a different line. He's going to wipe out the Omri dynasty. He anoints Jehu to be king. And Jehu comes in and he wipes out and kills uh, all the descendants of Ahab. But he doesn't take the northern kingdom back to the true worship of God. He just takes them back to the stems of Jeroboam. All throughout the, the uh, kings, when you read about these kings, Jeroboam's sin, Jeroboam's the first sin, becomes the paradigm for all things. And so-and-so ruled, but he ruled and followed in the path of Jeroboam according to all the sins of Jeroboam. So you read that over and over again. And so the third period of, of religious apostasy in the north is just the restoration of Jeroboam's idolatry in the northern kingdom. He still denies what they have for the Bible. He denies the Mosaic law. He denies the centrality of worship down in Jerusalem, and yet he still attacks the name of Yahweh to everything. And this continues. Now, the next great king, if you just look down your your list here, the next great king in the the north is Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II, uh, there's a restoration of of, uh, economic prosperity in his time, but it's accompanied with tremendous moral collapse. This is God's grace before judgment. And you see how God graciously blesses the nation. There's tremendous economic prosperity. There's growth. There's some military prosperity as they have victory uh, once again over some of the foreign powers, that, uh, especially the Arameans from the north who had been attacking. And uh, the nation seems to have a sense that there is a blessing from God. But what they do is they use that economic prosperity and the military security as just a further excuse to further develop their their, uh, apostasy and their depravity. It becomes an excuse and a fuel for their own evil. And this just then secures their eventual demise. See, this is in 753 that he dies, that Jeroboam II dies, and by then Assyria is the ominous dark cloud on the eastern horizon. They have now become a dominant military player. And Jeroboam II down to 753. And the last few kings are increasingly evil and wicked until just uh, 30 years, 31 years after the death of Jeroboam II, the nation, the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians uh, during the reign of Hosea. And that wipes out the northern kingdom. So there is gr- the prosperity that you see in, under Jeroboam II is merely a recognition of the principle of grace before judgment. Now the reigning, the prophets at that time, you have 
Jonah in the south, you have Amos in the north. And Amos is the one who comes and says that, that you were built like a wall, you were supposed to be the plumb line, but according to uh, your apostasy, that wall is tottering and getting further and further away from the plumb line so that the fur- further you get from it, you will collapse. And then he switches the metaphor and he says that like figs, you will soon become totally rotten. So it is the warning here of Amos that this is God's last grace uh, provision for you as a nation. It's the last opportunity for you to repent and to avoid, turn back to God and avoid the judgment. And if you don't, then God will destroy the nation. They don't. God destroys the nation. And that's the end in the north. Now, that outlines the northern kingdom. And I want to go back and look at the other de- develop, one other major development that takes place, the major theme that goes through the history, and that's the development of the office of prophet the development of the office of prophet, but we're just about out of time, so I don't want to break in the middle of that. So we'll come back and look at the office of prophet next time. The development of the office of prophet under under Samuel and how that becomes sort of a theological seminary for the training of prophets who will continuously be a thorn in the side of many of the different kings as they challenge them with the truth of God's Word down through history. And we'll see how the the non-writing prophets such as Elijah, Elisha, and the writing prophets and how that fits in, how Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, how those books fit in to the history of Israel. So keep those charts with you to have uh, next time and we will continue to work through those and help you put this together in your thinking with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and to see how you work throughout the Old Testament period, the ancient world to bring about your provision of salvation and how you always provided for Israel that there was always grace, there was always the offer of salvation, there was always the anticipation of a Messiah and that you never let the lamp die out and ultimately your prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray too that if there's anyone who is unsure of their salvation that's here this morning, that they would take this opportunity to make that salvation certain in their own thinking, that they would realize that there is salvation in no other than Jesus Christ that he is the culmination of all of the Old Testament prophecies and that everything in the Old Testament anticipated his coming and his payment as our substitutionary sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Father, we pray that right now that any of us who are believers, that we would be challenged by realizing the consequences of our actions and that our spiritual decisions have consequences not just in our own lives but for our nation. That as goes the believer, so goes the nation. Father, we pray that we would be challenged to positive volition and to continue to pursue spiritual maturity. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.